You may be seated. Recently, my family and I, we got a puppy. And so here's a picture of our uh, puppy. Uh, so this is, this is our puppy, Ozzy. Uh, we named him Ozzy because Meg's favorite musician is Ozzy Osbourne. And uh, I'm just joking, that's not true. And uh, <laughs> we just like the name. But uh, we love Ozzy. We love this little dog. And since we've had Ozzy, I have been reminded of the fact that we are made for relationships. Human beings are made for re- relationships. We are so hard- hardwired for relationships that we have relationships with animals. And it feels somewhat natural to have relationships with pets. And we talk to our pets, and we pretend that our pets understand what we're talking about. And uh, last week I saw this on Twitter. Someone tweeted this out. Uh, the perfect date. And uh, <laughs> the perfect date. And this tweet went viral. Like millions of people saw it. Hundreds of thousands of likes. Thousands of comments. You go, girl. Hashtag date your dog. And um, I saw that, and I thought, hashtag don't date your dog. That, is, that would be a very sad life if that was your actual date. And please don't get me wrong, I love pets, but there is a limit to the amount of joy and pleasure you can get, that you can get out of uh, in a relationship with a pet. There's, there's a limit. I mean, there is joy, there's pleasure, it's fun, it's, you know, it's good to have a pet, but there's a limit to the amount of joy and pleasure you can experience in a relationship with a pet. But then think about your relationships with other people. I mean, your, your family, your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your kids, your close friends, they are your life. They are your joy. You, you love them. There is so much more life and joy you experience in your relationships with human beings. But there is a limit to the amount of life and joy you can experience in relationships with human beings because we're finite creatures. But then we have a relationship with God, and God is infinite. He is eternal. He is endless, and there is no limit to the joy and life and pleasure we have access to in Christ. And as Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are on a path towards increasing joy and pleasure forevermore. Psalm 16 calls this fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I mean, why do you exist as a human being? Why do you exist? Why have you been created? You've been created to know God through Jesus Christ. You have been created to know God through Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus Christ came into the world, to reconcile the broken relationship between God and man because of sin. And he did this through his life, death, and resurrection. And now what he offers the world is forgiveness of sins and a relationship. He he offers us a relationship with himself. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what a picture. He says, see, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Sharing a meal with Christ is a picture of deep fellowship with Christ. And I'm convinced that's what every human heart has been created for. We have been created to know God through Jesus Christ. We long for fellowship with Jesus Christ. We desire satisfaction in Christ. We want fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. This is what we have been created for. And in Genesis 18, God is going to appear to Abraham and Sarah, and they will have fellowship 
together around a meal. This is what's going to happen in the story, that God is going to come to Abraham and Sarah, and they're going to, they're going to sit in a tent, and they're going to have fellowship around a meal. And what we cannot miss in the text is the truth that God comes to meet with his people that we might have fellowship with him. This is what's happening in the text, that God comes to meet with his people that we might have fellowship with him. Christianity is not a ladder that we climb to work our way to God. Many people think this is the way to God, that it's a ladder. You climb your way to God. That is not what the message of the gospel is. The gospel is the message of how the Son of God became a man for us. He became a man for us. He left heaven for us that we might know him that we might walk with him, that we might have deep fellowship with him. And so there is much good news in this passage for us. And I want to look at two scenes with you this morning. The first scene is that Abraham serves. Abraham serves. The second is that Sarah laughs. Abraham serves and Sarah laughs. Let's start with Abraham serves. Verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. Now this is an extraordinary event that God, the creator of the universe, is coming down to meet with Abraham and Sarah. This is what is called a theophany, a visible manifestation of the invisible God. It's where God, who is spirit in his essence, makes himself visible. If God did not make himself visible, you can never see him. You can never, you can never have a relationship with him. God must come to us. And in Genesis chapter 15, we see that God shows up as a flaming torch in a smoking oven. But how will he show up here in Genesis 18, verse 2? He looked up and saw three men standing near him. Now, the Lord, the God of heaven, is one of these three men. Study chapter 18, study chapter 19. You see that, that God is one of these three men, and the other two men are angels. They are angels. He, Abraham, looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them, bowed to the ground, and said, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go, please do not go on past your servant. Now, we need to notice what Abraham does. Verse 2, Abraham runs. This word means to sprint, to run with urgency. He is sprinting towards these three men. One scholar says of Abraham in verse 2 that Abraham is embarrassing himself in this encounter with the three men. So what's happening? He's embarrassing himself. It was, it was not dignified for dignified, it was undignified for dignified men to run. So that, that, men did not run. But Abraham is 99 years old, and he is sprinting towards these three men. And when he gets there, he bows to the ground. He doesn't just give a bow. He goes all the way to the ground. He can't get any lower. And he calls one of them Lord, Adonai. He calls one of them Lord because one of them stood out from the other two. And he invites them to stay. He says, stay with me. Can you stay with me? Verse 4. He says, let a little water be brought, that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you've passed your servant's way. Later on, you can continue on. Yes, they replied. Do as you have said. Now, in these verses, this is the classic under-promise and over-deliver. Under promise, over deliver. Verse four, let a little water be brought. Just a little water be brought. Verse five, I will bring a bit of bread. Little water, a little bit of bread. Verse six, so Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. 
The original audience would have said, three measures of fine flour. That doesn't mean anything to us. Three measures of fine flour, what does that mean? Well, three measures of fine flour would feed 100 adults. And if you're trying to make sense of that, that would be about 10 teenage boys. That works out to be about 10 <laughs> teenage boys. This is a lot of bread. This is 50 full loaves of bread for three men. So you're like, what in the world is going on? Verse seven, Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Now one choice calf was less than a year, a year old and weighed about 700 pounds. So this is an absolute feast. So much food, these are three men. And he prepares the fattened calf. And he gives him 50 loaves of bread, verse eight. Then Abraham took curds, which is probably butter. He took curds and milk, as well as the calf that he had prepared, and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. This would have taken hours to prepare, hours and hours and hours to prepare. But by the time we get to verse eight, the table is literally set. It is a massive feast. And notice where Abraham is at. Where is he? Is he sitting down with these three men? No, it says he served them as they ate under the tree. He stands to serve these three guests. Now Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, intends for us to notice Abraham's eagerness. The way he writes the story, he intends for you, for me, for us, to see the eagerness of Abraham to serve. If you look at verse two, it says he ran to the entrance of the tent, from the entrance of the tent to meet them. He bows down. Verse six, Abraham hurried. He hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Verse seven, Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf, gave it to the man who hurried to prepare, to prepare it. This keeps going on throughout the story. He, he's not panicked, but he is, he is serving with eagerness. And brothers and sisters, we are to serve the Lord eagerly. You are to serve the Lord eagerly. We are to serve Christ wholeheartedly with gladness. Serving Christ should be the joy of your heart. If serving Christ is not a joy to you, you're not serving Christ. You're serving something else. If serving Christ is not a joy to you, then you're serving something else, some other God, some other ends. Maybe you're serving yourself. Maybe you're just looking at people and, and you say, these people aren't worthy of my time. But see, serving Christ is to be our joy. Psalm 2, or Psalm 100 verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Abraham is not dragging his feet. He's not making up excuses. He is serving God eagerly, joyfully, sacrificially. And this is the way we are to be as well. And if you were to ask Abraham, Abraham, why are you serving the Lord eagerly? Why are you serving the Lord eagerly? What do you think he would say? I, I don't know, I'm just speculating here, but I think he would say this, because, it, because it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Why, what do you mean? Like, how else would you serve Christ? Would you serve Christ half-heartedly? As I was studying this passage this week, I, I kept having this thought go through my mind that as a dad, as a husband, as a pastor, as a brother in Christ, I want my life to demonstrate an eagerness to serve Christ. Like I want my wife and my kids, I want all of you, and most importantly, I want the Lord to see my eagerness to serve him. I, I, don't, I do not want 
to be reluctant. See, reluctant, half-hearted, feet-dragging, excuse-making service to the Lord doesn't honor him. The Lord Jesus Christ is not honored when we drag our feet. He's not honored when we make up excuses. He's not honored when we take the easy route. He's honored by joyful, glad-hearted, eager service. And we are not to just reduce. See, Jesus is not physically here on earth right now. So how do you serve the resurrected King of Kings? How do you serve Christ? By serving one another, by serving in the body, by, by loving your neighbor, by loving one another. This is the way that we are to serve Christ. And if we reduce serving each other to just serving each other, then our eyes get fixed on the worth and the value of other people and the shortcomings of other people, the failure of other people, the worthiness of other people. But the Lord Jesus Christ says serving his body is ultimately about serving him. It's about serving him. Abraham, his attitude is not reluctant. It's not sour. He's eager. Verse 8, he served them as they ate under the tree. Abraham stands ready to serve. He doesn't say, nobody eats dinner in my tent without me. He, you know, he doesn't, that's not what he does. He stands there. They're sitting in his seat. They're eating his food. And he's happy to serve them. So brothers and sisters, let's be eager to serve Christ. Don't offer him reluctant worship. Don't offer him half-hearted service. Let's be eager to serve Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our sacrifice. He's worthy of all that we are and all that we have. And let's serve one another eagerly. Let's out, outdo one another in love. This is the way the church is to be. And this is the way that so many of you are. I look at so many of you and you guys are way ahead of me. You're way ahead of me in this area and it's a beautiful thing. But let's press on. Let's do that more and more which leads to Sarah laughs. So Abraham serves, Sarah laughs. One detail in the story that becomes clear as you study chapter 18 is that Sarah is indirectly the focus of the entire encounter. So you read through it once and it seems like, okay, this is about these three men and Abraham, and it is. But I don't think Abraham is even the focus of this encounter. I believe Sarah is the focus of this encounter. Why do I say this? In verse eight, the feast is on. I mean, do you see the feast in your mind? It's huge. 50 loaves of bread, what in the world is that? A fattened calf for three people, what is that? It's this massive feast. But before they eat and before they have any meaningful conversation, look at verse nine. It says, where is your wife, Sarah? Where is your wife, Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he answered. This is a strange question for many reasons, one of them being that the custom of the day is that women would not sit down with other men at a meal like this. That was not the custom. Yeah, I mean, women would eat with their husband, with their kids in a tent, that, that was normal, but when you had guests, it was, it, the custom of the day is that women would not, would not be in that room with these men. They would be off doing something else. But before they eat and before they have any meaningful conversation, the question is asked, where is your wife, Sarah? And the Lord uses the covenant name, Sarah. Sarah's name was Sarai, but her name was changed by God, by the Lord himself, to Sarah. And so when, when the Lord says, hey, Abraham, 
where is your wife, Sarah? I think all of the light bulbs are on at this point. I think that Abraham probably knew this is the Lord before this point, but at this point, all the light bulbs are on. They're all on. This is the Lord. Verse 10. The Lord said, so the Lord waits until Sarah can hear him before he says anything. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening. I love this. Where is she at? Okay, look where she's at. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. So she's, she's like on the other side of him, listening to the conversation. Notice that there is no new information given. Abraham had already heard this. Abraham already knew this. So why did the Lord come? If the Lord did not come to give new information, then why did the Lord come? Well, he came to convince Sarah of the promise. Or another way to say this, he came to convince Sarah of what she already knew. She already knew the promise, but she didn't believe it. So the Lord comes to convince Sarah of the promise she already knew, which illustrates a very important principle. Here's the principle. It is not good enough to know God through other people. You must know God yourself. It is not good enough for you to know God through other people. You must know God yourself. One scholar points out that Sarah had known God and the promise of God only through Abraham. God had spoken to Abraham many times on a number of occasions, but God had never spoken directly to Sarah. So all of Sarah's information that she was getting was coming through Abraham, but but Sarah had not heard the voice of God. And it is not good enough to know God through your parents. It's not good enough to know God through your pastors. It's not good enough to know God through your friends. You must know God yourself. No one can live your Christian life for you. No one can walk by faith for you. You must hear the voice of God. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They follow me. You must hear the voice of God. You must individually walk with God. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, well, man, I wish God would just show up and have dinner with me. I mean, wouldn't that be great if God would just knock on my door and then he would come in and we could just have a a meal together? Then I would definitely believe. But look at Sarah. How does Sarah respond to the Lord? I mean, God, think about the story. God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who created Adam and Eve, the one who created all people, the one who's made these incredible promises to Abraham and to Sarah, shows up at their tent. And how does Sarah respond? She laughs at him. She laughs. She laughs at the promise of God. Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself, I am worn out, and my Lord is old. Will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? I love that question. He's not going to skip past that. He's like, wait a second. Why did she laugh? Saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. In about a year, she will have a son. Verse 15, Sarah denied it. No, I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. So first, she laughs at the promise of God, and then she lies to God. That's a bad strategy. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Sarah denied it. 
I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. Fear makes you do really dumb things. But he replied, no, you did laugh. You did laugh. And I am so grateful for this exchange. I am so grateful for the patience of God. Do you see the patience of God here? I mean, he cares so much about Sarah's faith. He cares so much about her doubts that God himself came down from heaven to meet with her, to meet with Abraham, and to convince her of his word, to convince her of his promise. And Sarah doesn't believe right away. She laughs, and then she lies to him. And notice that God does not get angry at Sarah. I love that. She, he doesn't get angry at, at Sarah. He, he, he doesn't say to Sarah, do you know who I am? You unbelieving snake. How dare you laugh in my face? I mean, don't, I created the universe. That's not his attitude at all. He says, you did laugh. You laughed. And so God comes to help Sarah believe what she already knows. Can you imagine what your life would be like if you believed everything you affirmed to be true in the Bible? I mean, what would your life be like if you actually believed everything you affirmed to be, to be true in the Bible? And see, so much of that is just the process of sanctification, where God, by his grace, through his people, through his word, through his Holy Spirit, is convincing us over and over and over again of what we already know. He's helping us to believe what we already affirm to be true, that our lives might be changed. So here's the story. Abraham serves, Sarah laughs. What do we do with the passage? How do we apply it? What do we learn? What are the lessons? Here we go. Number one, I have two of them. I hope we can get to both, but maybe we'll get to one. We'll see. Number one, Sarah learns that nothing is impossible for God. This is, this is the lesson that Sarah must learn. She hasn't learned it fully, but she's going to get there by the grace of God. Verse 14, is anything impossible for the Lord? That's the question. Good news, no. That should be good news for our hearts. No, nothing is impossible for the Lord. And if Sarah is gonna walk closely with God, have fellowship with God, Sarah must learn this. And if you're gonna be a friend of God, if you're gonna walk closely with God, you must learn this truth, that nothing is impossible for the Lord. Categorically, there are two ways to live. You can live two ways. Option one, you can interpret God through the lens of your circumstances. This is what Sarah does in chapter 18. I mean, why would she laugh at the promise of God? Why would you laugh at the promises of God? Why would you not believe his word? Why, why would I not believe his word? There are a lot of reasons. But what Sarah does here is that she processes the promise of God through the lens of her strength, through the lens of her ability, through the lens of her situation. Look at verse 12. So she laughed to herself, after I'm worn out? This is an incredibly negative term in the original language. I mean, she has such negative thoughts about herself. After I am worn out? And my Lord is old. Look at Abraham. He is an old man. I'm worn out. My Lord is old. Will I have delight? Now, at first, it, it looks like this phrase, will I, or this question, will I have delight, is the question, will I have a child now that I'm old and Abraham's old? But that's not actually what the word means. This question, will I have delight, it's a sexual term. Will we have sex? Will we have sex? 
So the, 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 the pieces are, I'm old, Abraham's old, we've been trying to have a kid for 70 years, 80 years maybe, 70 years, and we aren't even having sex. We haven't had sex in a long time, and now we're going to have a kid? And if you interpret, if you interpret God and his word through the lens of your strength and your circumstances and your ability, you will laugh at God. You won't believe him. It seems too overwhelming in Sarah's mind. And you cannot walk with God this way. If you filter all of God's word and all of God's promises through yourself, you won't believe him. You won't trust him. You won't do what he says. But there is a better way to live. There's a different way to live. This is option two. You'll either interpret God through your circumstances or you'll interpret your circumstances through the lens of the character of God. And this is what God is moving Sarah towards. Look at verse 13. But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Verse 14, is anything impossible for the Lord? God's saying, Sarah, the question is not, is anything impossible for Sarah? We already know the answer to that question. The answer is yes, most things are impossible for Sarah. And when you read the scriptures and you think about your life, the question in your mind should not be, is anything impossible for me? That will not give you courage. That will not give you strength. That will not help you to trust God. That will not help you to obey him. Of course, most things are impossible for us. We can't do them. So the question is not, is anything impossible for you? The question that God asks that Sarah needs to answer and you need to answer is the question, is anything impossible for the Lord? See, he is infinite in power. Nothing is too difficult for him. And we ought not to project our weaknesses, our hurts, our limitations on our Lord. Sarah is saying, since we cannot have a child, therefore we will not have a child. We cannot, Abraham and I cannot, therefore we will not. But God says to Sarah, it does not depend on your ability. It depends on my promise. And you can't walk with God if you depend on your own ability, your own strength. The very nature of biblical faith is confidence in God himself. Confidence in God himself. Now, I have to pause for a moment here to deal with a misapplication uh, that is very common in our world, and I don't want anyone to misunderstand what we're talking about here. And here's the wrong application of these truths. This is, this is the thought process, the wrong thought process. We say, okay, okay, Dan, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, God can do the impossible. Therefore, I should start believing God that, that God will do the impossible. God can do the impossible, therefore he will do the impossible. That's the nature of faith. So by the end of 2023, I'm going to believe that God is going to make me a billionaire, the richest man in the world. You know, it's impossible for me, but nothing is impossible for him. Or by the end of 2023, the Iowa State Cyclones will win a football national championship. That might test the limits of God's eternal power. That may be impossible. I don't know. It will test the Lord. But yeah, okay, so I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe it. That is not what God is asking Sarah to do. The application for Sarah was not just start believing uh, that maybe there's gold underneath your feet. Like billions of dollars of gold. That's impossible for me, but not impossible for the Lord. That's not the way we're supposed to. We're not supposed to just start trusting God to do impossible things. 
So what's the right application? What's the right application for Sarah? It's for her to believe she's going to have a child by the end of the year. That was the promise God made to her. So we are to believe that God will do all that he promises, all that he promises, and he can do anything. He can do anything consistent with his character, and he will do everything he promises. Nothing is too difficult for him. He can part the Red Sea. He can raise people from the dead. He can give you a new heart and make you a new person. Our God is in the heavens, and he does what he pleases. He's in charge of all things, and at some point in your life, there must be a settled resolution about, in your soul, a settled resolution in your soul about how you are going to live. How will you live your life? Will you commit yourself to yourself, to your own understanding, to your own intuition, to your own desires, your own dreams, your own goals? Will you trust in what you see alone, or will you commit yourself entirely to God? Will you entrust yourself entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ? And this is where God is moving Sarah to complete dependence and trust in God alone. Now, why would you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you know he's trustworthy? How, would you, how do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ is trustworthy? Well, in Genesis 18, it says that the Lord appeared to Abraham. I've been thinking about that all week long. He appeared to Abraham, and he came in the form of a man, but he wasn't a man. 2,000 years after this, the Lord Jesus Christ wouldn't just appear as a man. He would become a man. He became a man just like us, truly God and truly man. He became one of us for our sake. Why did he come? Well, one way to think about this is that Jesus came because salvation is impossible for us. It is impossible for us. There's, there's no amount of good deeds that we could do to ever make up for our sin. There's no amount of, uh, there's no amount of uh, money that you could give away. You, even if you fed all the poor, starving people in the world, that would not make you right with God. There's nothing you can do. It is impossible for us to make ourselves right with God. And so the Lord Jesus Christ came to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. The Lord Jesus Christ became a man, and then he lived the life that God requires of us, and then he went to the cross and died on the cross for our sins, that, that we might be forgiven, that the barrier between God and man might be removed, that he might bring us to God, that we might walk closely with God, that he might give us a new life, that he might give us eternal life. And then he ascended into heaven, where he rules and reigns from heaven, and one day he will return. And so how do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ is trustworthy? The answer is that he lived for you, he came for you, he lived for you, he died for you, he rose for you, he ascended for you, and one day he'll come back for us. He loves you. And the very nature of the Christian life is that we would stop trusting in ourselves and we would trust him. Whatever you say, I'll do. All of your promises are true. And this is how we walk closely with Christ. In uh, Revelation 3.20, there's that picture, the famous picture, where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. I think that certainly is a picture of someone coming to faith in Christ, but he's writing it to the church. He's writing it to a church. 
where every day there's an opportunity for us to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, to have fellowship with Christ. And the way we do that is by believing him, walking with him, trusting him, and obeying him. And as we do that, he changes our lives. So brothers and sisters, let's trust the promises of God. Let's hold on to the promises of God. Let's not laugh at his word. Let's not dismiss his word. Let's take it seriously. Let's do what he says. Let's serve the Lord with eagerness, and he will change us and bring much glory to himself. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven.